Well, we're doing a Christmas preaching series on Christmas words, and I have Christmas words for you this morning, and they are the virgin birth. The virgin birth. These are three precious and miraculous uh, Christmas words. The virgin birth. The virgin birth, of course, is a major league miracle. Never happened before it happened and won't happen since it's happened. The virgin birth is a miracle of high order. Now, those who are liberal that would still call themselves Christians, people that do not believe the word of God literally, these liberal Christians deny the possibility of all miracles. And so they certainly deny the miracle of the virgin birth. I want to read one such uh, denial of the virgin birth that comes from William Barclay. Some of you have heard of him. He was a a Bible commentator. And... um, He has, I think, a shameful view on the um, virgin birth. I want to read what he has said. Listen, quote, This passage tells us how Jesus was born by the action of the Holy Spirit. It tells us of what we call the virgin birth. This is a doctrine which presents to to us many difficulties. and, And our church... Barclay's talking about his denomination, and our church does not compel us to accept it in the literal and physical sense. Yuck. Quote goes on. This is one of the doctrines on which the church says that we have full liberty to come to our own conclusions. At the moment, we are concerned only to find out what this means for us. That's a dangerous hermeneutic. That's a faulty way to interpret Scripture. That Scripture only means what we think it means to us. That is not proper hermeneutics. That is not proper interpretation of Scripture. We believe that God's Word is, in fact, God's Word that gives us propositional truths on everything to which it addresses, including the conception and the birth of our Savior. We do not think we have liberty to pass off something the scriptures declare as being true and historic as not being so. We don't have that liberty. Sorry, William Barclay. That denial that I read to you of the virgin birth's veracity is reprehensible, especially how many people use William Barclay's commentaries. Interestingly, Muslims believe in Jesus' virgin birth. Muslims, in fact, revere Jesus as the son of Mary. In fact, Mary to them is the only woman mentioned in the Koran. Did you know that? The Koran itself affirms that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. What is odd is that Muslims find themselves in the position of defending the virgin birth against liberal-minded Christians, may I interject, like William Barclay who call it an impossibility. The quote goes on. Muslims also oftentimes go on the defensive against liberal Westerners who say that Jesus did not ascend into heaven. They believe that God took Jesus directly up into heaven, for even their greatest prophet, Muhammad, had to be purified by angels before he received prophethood. Muslims even present as a miracle worker the Lord Jesus. But 
They believe that Christ healed the blind, cured the lepers, and to quote the Koran, brings forth from the dead by leave. End of quote. In this way, even the Muslims understand that Jesus, the Messiah, or the Anointed One, was born of the Virgin Mary. Of course, non-believers, agnostics, people who doubt that they can know the truth, they're agnostics, and atheists ridicule the notion of a virgin birth. They say it is impossible. But all things are possible with God. But we, Bible-believing believers, we believe and know that the God of the Bible specializes in doing so-called impossible things. He is our miracle-working God. And in point of fact, miracles are the main course of the Christian scriptures. The plot of the Bible does not move along without miracles. And so we who believe that God who cannot lie and accept what his word says about Mary's miraculous pregnancy, we stand unpersuaded otherwise. We view the virgin birth as one miracle of many other miracles, and we understand the miracle of the virgin birth to be integral to God's plan of salvation. Today I want us to look at three facts of the virgin birth. There are other facts that we could exposit, but let's just focus on three facts about the virgin birth. And they are, one, it fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Two, it rocked the boat. And three, it blocked the transmission of a sin nature. Let's take these one by one. The virgin birth fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah the prophet, 600 years before Christ's incarnation, said this in chapter 7, verse 14, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. That prophetic word about this Messiah, as I said, was 600 years before the actual first Christmas. The Hebrew noun here in Isaiah 7, verse 14 is Alma, A-L-M-A-H, Alma. It means an unmarried, medically defined virgin woman. That's what Alma means. Um, unmarried, medically defined virgin woman. Alma, there in Isaiah 7, verse 14. The same Hebrew word, Alma, occurs in Genesis 24, 43, referring to Rebekah, and in Proverbs 30, verse 19, referring to a young bride consummating her marriage. And it's referred in Song of Solomon 1, verse 3, and Song of Solomon 6, verse 8, refers to the unmarried and pure Jewish women of Judah, Alma. Technical word 
medically defined virgin woman. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 1, verse 23. Matthew 1, verse 23. Now we come to the New Testament. And in Matthew 1, 23, God's word tells us, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. What is the Greek word? What is the Koine Greek word translated virgin, virgin in Matthew 1, verse 23? It is parthenos. Parthenos. It too is a technical word. And it too means what Alma meant in the Old Testament. It means an unmarried woman who is a medically defined virgin. Whether you look at Alma in the Old Testament or Parthenos in the New Testament, both Testaments, both biblical languages say that Mary would be a medically defined virgin, but she would be with child the Messiah, and he was to be called Emmanuel, God with us. These two words are precise words. Alma and Parthenos don't have any fuzzy meanings. They can't be fudged to be something other than a medically defined virgin. They are precise, unambiguous words. So what we have here is both the Old Testament and the New Testament stating that Messiah's birth would be a supernatural miracle, a literal virgin birth. Please turn with me to Genesis 3, verse 15. A very interesting observation of this verse in Genesis 3, verse 15. God speaking to a fallen Adam and to a fallen Eve who were in sin, God said to them, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you and you shall bruise his heel. Referring to the serpent, God said that. Is it not interesting to you that God says it would be the seed of the woman who would bruise Satan on the head. He didn't say the seed of the man and the woman. He said in prediction, the seed of the woman would bruise, defeat, ultimately destroy Satan, that seed being the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's virgin birth was alluded to even as far back as Genesis 3 and verse 15. So what are the implications? Well, the practical historical implications of the virgin birth was that it rocked the boat. You think word can get around Nassau fast with the grapevine? And it can. (laughs) Think of how fast the word got around in that little village where Mary lived. She's having a baby, you know. A lot of ugly questions would have come up. Was she fooling around before she got married? And if she was, with who? Joseph or somebody else? Was she unfaithful and impure in her betrothal period? Should Joseph write a bill of divorcement? We'd say break off the engagement. He's got the right to do that, you know. Whose last name will the baby have? Can't you see them saying that at the well as they drew water? So whose last name is he going to have? 
Will Joseph go ahead and marry her? A year's time, consummate the, the marriage? Or will he drop it? Will he walk away from her because he's so embarrassed and scandalized? Who's going to raise this unborn child? Ugly questions. Would God judge and punish Mary just like he judged and punished King David? Would this innocent child die like David and Bathsheba's child died? Just some of the potential, likely, I think, ugly questions that arose. And so we read verses like Matthew 1, verses 18 and 19. Listen, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child by the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph, being her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly, to write a bill of divorcement, to break off the betrothal. We would say to break off the marriage engagement. Or John 6, verse 42. And they said of Jesus, those who didn't believe in him, and they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? Whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? They just reduced Mary's birth of Jesus as being due to fornication. They just assumed that the biological father of the, of the Lord Jesus was Joseph, the betrothed husband. Or how did Jesus see that? John 8, verse 19, I'll show you how. He said, to, they said to him, the Pharisees said to him, where is your father? In other words, you're, you're legitimate. You are actually a word, a nasty word that begins with B. Who's your father, Jesus? Do you know? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father, capital F. If you had known me, you would have known my father, capital F. <laughs> Jesus said, my father is God the father, and by the way, you guys don't know him, although you wear fancy robes and you are religious bullies. And here is a truth bomb. Luke 3. Verse 23, this is written by a medical doctor, Luke, a follower of Jesus. He's a medical doctor, and the Spirit moves this medical doctor named Luke along to, to write the gospel by his name, the gospel of Luke. And in the gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verse 23, there is a truth bomb. Now Jesus himself began to his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. Dr. Luke <laughs> said, you guys all suppose that Jesus was the biological son of Joseph, but he wasn't. You just supposed that because Luke was affirming his father, Jesus' father, is God the Father because Jesus is God. Again, Luke, the doctor, moved by the Holy Spirit, wrote, Now, 
Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph. In John 8, verse 19, the Lord Jesus makes another tightly wound statement. In John 8, 19, the Lord Jesus says of himself, he referred to himself as God the Father being his father and not Joseph being his father. Joseph, in fact, was Jesus' foster father. Joseph, in obedience and faith in God, stepped in to be a foster father of the Son of God, whose real father was God the Father who sent the Holy Spirit to overshadow Mary and cause her to be pregnant. Listen to what it says, what Jesus says in John 8, 19. <laughs> then they said to him, where's your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father, capital F, father. You, don't know, you know neither me and you do not know my father, capital F. If you had known me, you would have known my father, capital F, also. Jesus says, you know me, you know my father. You don't know me, you don't know my heavenly father. It was a claim to be deity, among other things. But it was also an affirmation by the Lord Jesus Christ that Joseph was not his biological father that he had been virgin conceived and virgin born. Very significant. And so we said that in the first place, the virgin birth fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. In the second place, it rocked the boat for Joseph, for Mary, for the townspeople, even the Pharisees. The third point that I mostly want to spend our time on in this sermon, the third point is that the virgin birth blocked the transmission of a sin nature to Jesus. Let me explain. Impeccability is the Bible doctrine or teaching that the incarnate Christ could not sin because he was God and because he had no sin nature. The Lord Jesus Christ was impeccable. He could not sin. God fused to man the hypostatic union. God fused to man was incapable of sinning. That's the doctrine of impeccability. Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 7, verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. So that begs the question. The impeccability of Christ, that he could not sin, God fused to man, begs a question for you that are thinkers. 
And that is simply this. Were the temptations recorded in the New Testament of Jesus actual and real temptations if he couldn't sin? Yes. Actual temptations did present themselves to the Lord Jesus, but they were never able to take a foothold in his heart or in his life. For example, during our Lord Jesus' distressed time in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he prayed, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Matthew 26, verse 39. Now listen, follow. At that time in Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus was facing a satanic temptation to dodge the cross. But, however, that temptation found no foothold in the Savior's mind. No foothold in the Savior's heart. No foothold in the Savior's volitional choices. And Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, understood that the real fight was the fight for his righteousness. He struggled with the thought that he would soon be in any way in contact with unrighteousness, namely our sins. That was his struggle. His struggle was not to dodge the cross. His struggle was to have to wrap his mind and his humanity around the concept that in mere hours he was going to be touched by our sins as he bore them on the cross. Again, Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And again, Hebrews 7, verse 26, For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and became higher than the heavens. And to that we add a New Testament verse, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For he, God the Father, made him who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us. That didn't make Jesus a sinner on the cross. It made him a sin bearer a sin carrier. For he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we, why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him, not in ourselves. Believer, you are robed in Christ's righteousness, not based on your merit, not based on your service for God, not based on your measure of devotion. You have been made righteous. I have been made righteous in Christ. Christ's righteousness has been imputed to the believer's accounts. Praise God. So please note well, in order to save us from our sins, the Lord Jesus had to be sinless so that he could become sin for us, so that he could be our substitutionary atonement, 
so he could die the death we deserve to die so that he could give us the righteousness we could never realize on our own. Follow this logic. In order to become sin, the Lord Jesus Christ had to first be without sin. <laughs> he didn't become sin because he had any vestige or moniker of sin. He was sinless from eternity past. And because he was sinless and is sinless and forever will be sinless, he had to become sin, the sin bearer, because he never ever had one smidge, hint of sin. And he became sin on the cross because he took upon himself all the vile rebellion and sin. Christ never has been a sinner. Christ was never a sinner while on the cross. And Christ will never be a sinner. Now if we go to our last collateral reference, Psalm 51, verse 5, the great confession psalm of David after sinning with Bathsheba and orchestrating the military casualty of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, in that confession of sin that's in Psalm 51. In verse 5, David prays to God, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. This doesn't mean that marital relations and marriage are sinful, not at all. God invented it. This verse instead is teaching that all normal conception, typical conception, passes down a sin nature to the conceived child, even while the child's in the womb. And the phrase of this verse, in sin my mother conceived me, is something like saying this, on the beach my feet got sandy. That is to say, just like walking on the beach always results in getting sandy feet, human conception always results in a sin nature being passed on to the created child. None of us are born innocent. All of us are born rebels. It just takes differing amounts of time for our rebellion to God to show up. Let me ask you two diagnostic questions. You are parents. Did you have to teach your baby to say no? We didn't have to teach our kids to say no. They came across that idea for themselves. And did your baby say yes or no first? I rest my case. Based on scripture, I rest my case. Just like feet always get sandy when you walk on a beach, a conceived baby it gets the transmission to its being of a sin nature. The only exception was the Lord Jesus Christ. Virgin conceived, virgin born. You know, as parents, when you understand your baby says no before yes, and so frequently says no very young, 
Parents wisely know that right behaviors need to be consistently and intentionally taught and trained and modeled and instilled in young, very young sons and daughters. <laughs> Those of us who are parents know that is work. That is effort. That involves correction. That is entirely necessary or you're going to raise a person who has no respect for others and no respect for the law and no respect for God. That training of a young life that's inherited a sin nature, that training is totally going against the flow of the child's natural bent. Because human conception always results in a sin nature being passed on to an unborn child. So an exception was necessary because God would not impart a sin nature to his precious and only begotten son. There had to be, a, had to be an exception to the transmission of a sin nature, and that exception was the miracle of the virgin conception and birth of Jesus. You see, ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin in Genesis 3 and then procreated, and their children had children, and their children had children, and their children had children, all the way to the time of Jesus' birth, in that whole long line was the transmission of a sin nature from Adam and Eve having their first children to those children, etc., having children, all the way up to the Lord Jesus. He was the exception. He was the fulfillment of prophecy. He was the spotless Lamb of God fused to humanity. His birth, a miracle, supernatural, unprecedented, never to be repeated, counter to nature, pure miracle. Some of you know the name Dr. M.R. Dehan. Dr. M.R. Dehan, he was a, a physician, a medical doctor, who was also a well-known Bible teacher, and he founded the radio Bible class, you know, the daily bread that some of us use that's still being published by the radio Bible class that Dr. M.R. Dehan started. Listen to his quote. This is a quote from a medical doctor who loved the Lord. Quote, The origin of blood... It is now definitely known that the blood which flows in unborn babies' arteries and veins is not delivered from the mother, but produced within the body of the fetus itself only after the introduction of male sperm. An unfertilized ovum can never develop blood since the female egg does not by itself contain the elements essential for the production of this blood. It is only after the male element has entered the ovum that the blood can develop. As a very simple illustration of this, think of the egg of a hen. An unfertilized is just an ovum on a much larger scale than the human ovum. You may incubate this unfertilized hen's egg, but it will never develop it will decay and become rotten, but no chick will result. Let that egg be fertilized by the introduction of the male sperm and incubation will bring to light the presence of life in that egg. 
After a few hours, it visibly develops and in a little while, red streaks occur in the egg, denoting the presence of blood. This can never occur and does never occur until the male sperm has been united with the female ovum. The male element has added life to the egg. Life is in the blood, according to scripture. For Moses says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, Leviticus 17, verse 11, end of quote. Medical doctor and Bible teacher M.R. DeHaan gives us a rare melding together of medical science and theological understanding. And this melding together of medical science and theological understanding throws much necessary light on the absolute necessity of the Savior's virgin conception and birth. Basically, what Dr. DeHaan said in the quote that I read to you, this is what the doctor basically said, no sperm, no blood, no blood, no life, no life, no sin nature, no sperm, no sin nature, virgin birth, no sin nature. So let me state the third point of this sermon again. The virgin birth blocked the transmission of a sin nature to Jesus Christ. Don't you for a minute, <laughs> please, don't you for a minute revert to what Barclay would have you think. Barclay. This passage tells us how Jesus was born by the action of the Holy Spirit. It tells us of what we call the virgin birth. This is a doctrine which presents to us many difficulties, and our church, Barclay's church, does not compel us to accept it in the literal and physical sense. This is one of the doctrines on which our church, Barclay's church, the liberal church, says that we have full liberty to come to our own conclusions. No, we don't. We don't have liberty to come to our own conclusions that deny the veracity, the truthfulness, the inspiration of God's holy word. The virgin birth, three precious, sweet, pivotal Christmas words, the Definite article, there's only one of it, not a virgin birth, the virgin birth. Each of the three words is so precious and necessary. I close with a quote from C.S. Lewis. When it comes to Christ's virgin birth, and here's the quote, the grounds for belief are the same today as they were 2,000 or 10,000 years ago. If Joseph had lacked faith to trust God or humility to perceive the holiness of his spouse, he could have disbelieved in the miraculous origin of her son as easily as any modern man. Watch now. And any modern man who believes in God can accept the miracle as easily as Joseph did. I hope you accept the miracle unapologetically, confidently, 
winsomely. I hope we all accept the miracle of the virgin birth because it's true. It was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. It rocked the boat and it blocked the transmission of a sin nature to the Lord Jesus. Please stand with me. Let us pray. Lord, we say with the angels of old, glory to you in the highest for this miracle of the virgin conception and the virgin birth of our precious Lord and Savior, born without any sin nature, born to die that we would live, born to be the sin payment for our sins, the sin bearer for our transgressions. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking on human flesh in obedience to God the Father and in harmony with God the Holy Spirit and becoming our miraculous Savior. We affirm, we celebrate, and we trust in your virgin conception and your virgin birth. And we do so because of the grace afforded us in the Holy Spirit's ministry within us and the grace afforded us through the word of God's declarations of revelation to us. And we pray in Jesus, your precious name, amen. Please remain standing.